This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 3rd, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we're back with the latest stories from science. First up, I'm going to talk with contributing correspondent Kai Kupferschmidt about how humans have been trying for millennia to make the color blue and about some recent successes. And Megan Cantwell talks with Andrew Whitehead about how a small fish in the Gulf of Mexico, the Gulf killifish, has adapted to pollution with the help of its Atlantic cousin's genes. First up, we have contributing correspondent Kai Kupferschmidt. He's here to talk to us about the pursuit of blue. Hi, Kai. Hi, Sarah. So how long have humans been on the hunt for a blue color? That's already where the, the difficulty begins, I guess. Yeah. There's pretty good evidence from a cave in South Africa, the Blombus Cave, that 100,000 years ago, humans already were making pigments. So more like red ochre and yellow ochre and, and using charcoal for black. They were making pigments, but there's no evidence at all of any blue pigments. And for a very, very long time, that stays the same. I mean... There's some recent evidence uh, from, from a gravesite in Turkey that about 9,000 years ago, there were some burials of women and children where they had ground down azurite, which is a blue mineral. And, and even when it's ground down, it's, it's kind of a nice blue pigment. They were buried with this. Possibly it was used for cosmetics. We don't really know, but that's kind of the earliest evidence we have of any blue pigment. Why is blue so rare? Is there some physical property required to make something reflect the color blue that's hard to achieve? If you look in the plant world, there's a lot of different classes of pigments that we have. But there's only one class of pigments, the anthocyanins, which can actually make blue. And even then, it tends to be the more complicated molecules that are blue. And that's simply because in order for something to be blue, it needs to absorb the red. So the other part of the visible spectrum, basically. And red light is of the visible spectrum. It's the lowest energy light. So in order for something to absorb the red, the kind of jumps that an electron makes, which is how a molecule usually absorbs color, these jumps need to be very small jumps in order to absorb the red rather than the blue. So it's much easier for nature, it appears, to make molecules that, that absorb a blue uh, instead of ones that absorb red and appear blue. These molecules often have to have a lot of kind of side chains and little decorations until they really make a good blue. 
I mean, there is blue in nature. We got water, we got sky, we got blueberries. But for some reason, making a synthetic version, making a dye or a pigment is really difficult. What about blue butterflies? Those those have nice blue color. Yeah, and several of the blues that you've mentioned now are ones that aren't really pigments. So if you take the sky, it's, you know, blue light is kind of scattered more than, than red light, which is why the sky appears blue. In uh, water, it's interesting because water actually um, absorbs kind of in the red kind of to vibrate. The, the water molecules vibrate with the energy of red light, but it's not a very strong effect, which is why you only see the blue if there's a lot of water. And then um, the butterflies, like most animals, they're also not producing any blue pigments. Um, they have like tiny structures that reflect light in a way that most of the other colors are canceled. So if you take something very famous example, like the morpho butterfly, if you zoom into the scales on its wings, it has these little structures and they basically, you know, end up reflecting all of the, the light that shines onto the, onto the wing in a way that the other colors just disappear. And what you see is the blue. So basically everything is not a pigment or a dye that we see in everyday life. But if we want to reproduce those colors, if we want to make a painting or make something out of plastic, that's the right color blue. It's really difficult. Exactly. And, and, and humans in the past, usually they found these pigments by accident. Some of the earliest examples are indigo, which is a dye made from plants, but actually the plant itself isn't actually blue. So it's kind of a blue from nature, but it's only blue once humans do some chemistry on it. People for a very long time wanted to try and make synthetic indigo. And it took BASF, the chemical company, many, many years and an unprecedented amount of money uh, to finally come up with synthetic indigo. So they spent more than 8 million gold marks at the time, which was more than the company was even worth, to finally come up with, with the recipe for synthetic indigo, which was then produced around the world and, and is still used today to color jeans. It does make me wonder, what is wrong with the blues that we have? I mean, we have plenty of toys that are blue plastic. We have paints that are blue. What, what are those things that are available now not doing right or not achieving? Right. I think part of it is just the fascination with colors, right? I mean, there are so many different hues of blue. And if somebody comes up with a new one, it's just, especially, of course, the artists who are usually the first ones to use them. Uh, it's just fascinating to have, you know, one more hue. But then the other thing is that a lot of the blues that we use, so for instance, ultramarine, which is basically ground down lazurite, a part of lapis lazuli, it was one of the it was one of the most expensive pigments ever made. It was just very rare, right? Because you need the semi-precious stone lapis lazuli to even be able to do it. Later, people came up with a way of making it synthetically. But then even the synthetic version, um, it, it takes certain chemicals to make it that end up polluting the environment. A lot of sulfur dioxide is produced as a side product while you do it. So, I mean, that's one reason is the, the environmental um, implications. And the other one often is uh, toxicity. I mean, there's quite a few blues, like cobalt blue, that aren't, that aren't exactly healthy. And this is an ongoing search. People are still looking for blue pigments and dyes. And you or you took a look at three different approaches that are in the works right now. Let's start with the first blue-seeking scientist that actually found a new blue, but on accident. Like most blues in history. So Mas Supramanian is a, is a solid-state chemist, and he worked at DuPont for a while and made a lot of discoveries, but not really related to pigments at all. And then he started work at Oregon State University in Corvallis in 2006. 
And what he actually wanted to do was to find what's called a multiferroic, basically a material that at room temperature has certain magnetic properties, but also electrical properties. And that would make it really interesting for building a computer. And so he used uh, manganese oxide, yttrium oxide, and indium oxide, and he combined these. And it turned out that the compound he came up with didn't have any interesting properties, but it was incredibly blue. And he remembered from his days at DuPont that people said blue was actually kind of hard to make. So he just published it and the color that he created has just, you know, had this incredible life of uh, being used in many, many places. And now it's also being sold for artists to use. Well, let's move on to blue food coloring. Why do we need blue food coloring? I mean, yeah, everybody loves the blue drink, but I mean, what's wrong with what we have in now and what needs to change? Yeah, I was actually surprised by this because, um, you know, you rarely see blue food. In fact, I mean, that's one of the reasons that we know that we kind of all know that blue is rare in nature is that if you go into the you know, vegetable aisle or the, or the food aisle, there's not a lot that's ever blue. People do use it for icings on cake and, and for confectionery and things like that. But, you know, food, like any other thing that's colored, if you want to make a lot of different hues, you actually need the primary colors in order to mix it. And there's plenty of reds and yellows, but there's very little green and blue. And that's kind of where, where, where this need for blue comes in to just mix other colors People are looking for a different type of blue from a different source, basically. Exactly. And, you know, there's been lots of discussion for many years about where that might come from. And there is one natural colorant that was recently approved in the U.S., and that's spirulina. That's basically a crude extract from an algae that's used by the people that I talk to who work in this field all told me that it's in some ways it's a terrible blue. It's actually more green than blue and it's not, doesn't last very long. So there's still much progress to be made on uh, a new derived blue color for food. People are really kind of bioprospecting uh, for blue. There are some people who look at microbes um, and that has turned out to be quite difficult because a lot of the molecules that are blue turn out to be molecules that are also active maybe as antimicrobials. So not the type of thing you want in your food. And then, and then others have looked at plants and specifically at the anthocyanins, the only blue pigments in plants. So, so that search is going on. Uh, there are some fascinating flowers that are already used sometimes uh, in some places to color food blue. And people are trying to, to isolate the anthocyanins used in those. Okay. Well, let's talk about this, this third vignette. And this one is on ring woodite, which is a mineral that only exists at very high pressures. How did someone decide that maybe this would be a good source of blue? This was an interesting story because David Dobson is a geologist who works, at, who works in London at the university. He was working on this mineral, uh, which happened to be blue, but he never really thought that much about that fact until he saw some of his colleagues from the Slate School of, uh, of Fine Art, who are housed in the same building, get really excited when they got a sample of the new blue that uh, Master Brahmanian had developed, so the, the Yinmin blue. <laughs> And, and so, you know, one discovery kind of led to, to the next, in a sense, because David Dobson felt like, wait a minute, if blue is this, this interesting, um, you know, and I'm making it every day in the lab, maybe, maybe there is a way of turning this into a pigment. But the problem he had, of course, was that what he was making in the lab was something that's actually not really stable at, at the pressure at the Earth's surface. So it's normally, ringwoodite is a mineral that you find in the transition zone, like 
500 kilometers below our feet. And the pressure there is 200,000 times the atmospheric pressure that we have here at the surface. So he needed to come up with a way of stabilizing that. Right. How is that progressing? He's actually quite successful in finding a structure that kind of mimics the exact atomic structure that ringwoodite has, but does it with slightly different elements so that he ends up with something that's stable. So ringwoodite gets its color from iron, iron ions, similar to, to other blues like Prussian blue. So you need a structure for the mineral and then the iron ions um, have to be in there in a, to a certain extent in order for the electron to jump from one iron to the next one. At the moment, he's trying to find out how much iron he can actually put into the structure without the structure changing again, um, because that, that will decide how blue the pigment will actually end up being. Do you find yourself doing all this reporting, looking at things that a scientist says, look at this blue, and you kind of wonder if it's blue and maybe that you don't even know what blue is anymore? <laughs> yeah, actually, so um, one of the first things I did for the story was uh, to visit a researcher in Japan who's been working on this blue rose for almost 30 years now, so trying to make a rose that really appears blue. And they actually already kind of announced success uh, 15 years ago. But when you showed me the roses, they, they just... They just aren't really blue. I mean, they produce some blue pigment, but like overall, they just don't appear very blue. And, and of course, he he says it himself. It's, <laughs> but there is, you know, there is a difference. Like to me, there's this, there's the sense of what I think of as blue. And to me, this true blue is kind of a dark blue. English only has one basic color word for blue, but a lot of other languages actually have two words. So one for the light blue yeah. and one for the dark blue. For instance, uh, modern Greek and Russian, they, they all have two different words. So it, it becomes very interesting when you're talking about color to see how, how differently people kind of perceive it and, and what to them is like the example of a certain color. But most people I've talked to, they do agree that if you see something ultramarine, I think everybody can kind of agree that that is blue. It's almost the essence of blue. This story kind of reminds me somewhat of how space exploration tends to have so many spin-off, so many things that don't directly, they may have contributed to figuring out how to get into space or to have things that, that work well there. But then back on Earth, they kind of create all these technologies. And it really does seem like the search for blue has a similar effect. In, in a way, the blues, I think, are actually a spin-off of all of these. I mean, that, <laughs> you know, that there's not really a research field like pigmentology or blueology, right. you know, there's, there's no, very few researchers go into research saying, I want to, you know, make a new blue, partly because it's just almost impossible to do because we, we can't really predict well enough how matter will kind of, will interact with light and whether, what, what color it will end up looking. Yeah. So I think in, in, in a sense, a lot of these uh, researchers that I talked to, they came to the blue kind of by accident or, you know, from, from a different field and then they ended up there. And then it has this, this quality that it just fascinates people and people kind of end up being stuck on it a little bit, I think. And once you've kind of created a color, you know, like Masubramanian was saying, he's done a lot of things in his life and he's got patents for all kinds of things, but making this blue, it really speaks to a larger audience in a way that, that very little of his other research had done. And, and that fascinates him and it fascinates me. In, in terms of spin-offs, I think, uh, you know, the, the, real, uh, the real beneficiaries often are the artists because there's not a lot of people who would go out to try and make a new blue so that artists have a new blue. 
but all of this research kind of ends up giving them, you know, new tools that they can use. One thing that we talked about with respect to Blue is how it figures in fairy tales and in people's poetry and all these different cultural aspects of our lives. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things you've learned about that? I mean, especially blue uh, flowers have this have this very special place in a lot of literature. So, for instance, in Germany, in Romanticism, there's a very famous book called Heinrich von Ofterdingen, and in it, this young man dreams of a blue color, and it became the symbol that really became a very strong symbol for the unattainable and for longing for something. Over the years, this has been used again and again. And, and now when I see a Hollywood movie, you know, like Batman Begins, and I see this, you know, this blue flower that he has to look for in the mountains in Bhutan, you see this kind of motif really crop up again and again. There's um, a very interesting book by Philip K. Dick called um, A Scanner Darkly that was turned into a film a few years ago. Again, it's a blue flower that kind of produces a very, you know, strong chemical substance that humans use as a drug then. So this idea that blue flowers are kind of like a like a lab for really crazy chemistry is actually kind of a mainstream idea in art. And it turns out to be true if you talk to scientists. That's exactly that's exactly it. All right, Kai, thank you so much. Thank you. Kai Kuferschmidt is a contributing correspondent for science. You can find a link to his blue article at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for Megan Cantwell's interview with Andrew Whitehead about how a fish armed with pollution-resistant genes helped rescue the Gulf killifish through gene exchange. This episode is brought to you in part by KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning about STEAM fun. With a KiwiCo subscription, each month, the kid in your life, be it your neighbor, your own kid, grandkids, nieces, nephews, what have you, will receive a fun, engaging new project that will help develop their creativity and confidence. The projects are designed to spark tinkering and learning in kids of all ages. All the projects, inspirations, and activities are created by a team of product designers in-house in Mountain View, California, and rigorously tested by kits. Every crate includes all the supplies needed for that month's project, detailed, easy-to-follow instructions, and an educational magazine to learn even more about the crate's theme. KiwiCo inspires kids to see themselves as makers and is on a mission to empower kids not just to make a project, but to make a difference. KiwiCo is offering Science Magazine podcast listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids of all ages, visit kiwico.com slash magazine. That's kiwico.com slash magazine. Humans have altered the world in extreme ways, leading to the current sixth great mass extinction. But is there a way for species to evolve fast enough to survive? I'm here with Andrew Whitehead to talk about how Gulf killifish, a small fish found in the Gulf of Mexico, has survived pollution through adaptive evolution. Thanks so much for joining me, Andrew. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. First, can we start out with what type of environmental challenges these Gulf killifish are facing? They are occupying habitats in the Houston Ship Channel. And the Houston Ship Channel is a fairly sort of radically altered urbanized landscape and waterscape. 
So not only has the structure of the habitat changed quite a bit, but the chemical makeup of the habitat has changed quite a bit. Killifish seem to have done well in these super toxic environments. There's evidence that they did uh, have a period of decline, but they're now sort of large, healthy looking populations and they're doing just fine in this otherwise pretty lethal environment. What did you find could be driving this resistance within the killifish? The fuel for evolutionary change is genetic variation. And so we are interested in what are the sources of genetic variation for species that are challenged to evolve very, very quickly, like in the, uh, the Anthropocene that you alluded to. You can't wait for new mutations to arrive. You have to adapt immediately, essentially. That imposes constraints on where adaptive sources of genetic variation could come from. So we suspected that the local gene pool would be the most important source of variation. So we were searching through that local gene pool to find the genetic variants that enabled the species to go from zero to 60 in a few generations. The big surprise was that we found that two key adaptive mutations didn't come from the local gene pool. They came from another species of killifish thousands of miles away on the Atlantic coast. Is it known how the Atlantic killifish developed this resistance to toxicity? We know that the mechanism was through this profound mutations that essentially desensitized a signaling pathway that's normally activated by these chemicals. And when that signaling pathway is activated by these chemicals during development, it screws up the heart. So what these mutations have done is they've desensitized that signaling pathway's response to these chemicals. They've essentially broken (laughs) that response system. And the mutations for that seem to have come from the local gene pool for the Atlantic coast species. What we're thinking is that it's one of these mutations that break the signaling pathway that came from the Atlantic coast species into the Gulf Coast species. So we're suspecting that the source population was probably from a polluted environment on the Atlantic coast mm-hmm. that had enriched for a high frequency of these adaptive mutations. How did the Atlantic species of killifish end up in the Gulf of Mexico? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. Uh, that's... Uh, That's a bit of a mystery. These fish are about the size of your thumb and they don't move around that much. You catch a fish and it was probably born within 100 meters of where you caught it. So how they made it from the Atlantic coast, probably of the Southern United States to Texas, (laughs) it was almost certainly human assisted transport. So within the areas you sampled, you didn't see a lot of Atlantic killifish? There have been a number of genetic studies along the Gulf Coast, and you never find Atlantic killifish there. There is a very deep time signal in the data of really deep historical intergression between the two species, but nothing this recent. Uh, They don't come that far as an Atlantic Coast fish. Is there any way for you to tell by looking at the genome exactly when this variant was introduced into the Gulf killifish? Yes. So we had some very, very clever collaborators here at UC Davis, some graduate students at the time, uh, Kristen Lee and Sivan Yair, and they developed some new computational tools and analytical tools to be able to do just that. The dating seems to indicate that they arrived probably sometime in the 1970s, give or take a decade, and that at least one of the genetic variants that they brought with them offered a pretty massive selective advantage. Usually selective advantages are measured on a scale from zero to one. 
and selective advantages uh, for particular genes are usually measured at less than 0.01, you know, something like that. And this is a selective advantage of 0.8. So it's really a remarkably useful adaptive variant that was introduced. And there was one like that that was 0.8 and another one that was around 0.55. So there were two genetic variants that offered this massive selective advantage that was injected into the population by these migrants from the Atlantic coast sometime just in the last uh, four or five decades. Have you found that there are any negative consequences from this gene exchange between the Atlantic killifish and the Gulf killifish? Not yet. (laughs) So the value of hybridization for conservation biology has got a very controversial history, mainly because people think that when you get hybridization between two genomes, you might get some good stuff from that other species, but you're probably going to get a lot of incompatible DNA. We see only two big fragments of the Atlantic killifish genome in the adapted Gulf populations, meaning that those are the only useful variants. Now, They're actually pretty big chunks of DNA that include genes other than just the adaptive mutations. And so you might imagine that some of those other genes on this chunk might be incompatible with the rest of the Gulf killifish genome. But whatever advantage that's afforded by the adaptive mutation that overwhelms any negative effects, these other variants that hitchhike along with it at least in the polluted environment. We don't know if you would take these fish out of a polluted environment, whether these other variants from the Atlantic killifish might be problematic. But these fish seem to do just fine in a clean environment in the lab. Have you found any other examples like this of hybridization really driving adaptive evolution? Yes. So there are some remarkable examples actually in the human genetics literature. I think most people know by now that us, modern humans, are actually a hybrid of of modern and archaic humans. So we've all got some Denisovan DNA or some Neanderthal DNA, at least uh, non-African populations of, of humans. There was really a remarkable paper a number of years ago that showed that one of these Denisovan chunks of DNA that's in our genome was adaptive for living at high altitude in uh, populations in the Himalaya. So clearly, cross-species matings can be a source of genetic variation, of new genetic variation for a species. And sometimes that genetic variation is not going to work and it's purged from the population, but sometimes it it's going to just be neutral. It might be just knocking around in the population for some period of time and maybe come adaptive when the environment changes. And so this is an example uh, in our work where this introgression happened apparently at just the right time <laughs> during this population decline and happened to introduce mutations that were adaptive almost instantly. How do you think this type of research can inform future conservation efforts? Something that often comes up is sort of this optimistic conclusion of folks that, uh, great, evolution is the solution to pollution. It's going to take care of everything for us. Yeah. And I think that's a dangerous conclusion, A, because it tends to abdicate our responsibility to be, uh, to be responsible citizens of planet Earth, and B, most species aren't capable of doing this, what the killifish have done. What's unusual about killifish is they've got among the highest levels of genetic variation for any vertebrate species. So they've basically got insect-like levels of genetic diversity, and that really sets them 
quite apart from other vertebrates. So most vertebrates, most species that we really care about conserving are not as well equipped to evolve quickly. For conservation, we need to maintain large population sizes because that is not only good for so the short term, it's also very important for the long term evolutionary potential of species. And then also this research shows and we've known for a while that genetic variation that's adaptive can come from anywhere in the landscape. And to maintain the adaptive potential of species, we need to maintain sort of corridors for migration so that species can can keep moving their DNA around in the environment so that the right variants can be in the right place at the right time. Thanks so much, Andrew. Pleasure. Andrew Whitehead is an associate professor in the Department of Environmental Toxicology at the University of California, Davis. To find a link to his research, visit sciencemag.org podcasts. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, many other places, or you can listen on the Science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. There you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. To place an ad on the podcast, contact midroll.com. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and Megan Cantwell and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.